Hello and welcome. My name is Simon Gregory and joining me in the studio today, Habib Sabjali, Head of Global Equities at RBC and Senior Portfolio Manager on Habib's team, Jeremy Richardson. Now, gents, I'm going to get all philosophical on you okay. for this session, <laughs> or in fact, more importantly, you're going to get all philosophical on me because yeah, a critical part of portfolio management is having a clear philosophy, understanding what that is, understanding what it tells you, what it doesn't tell you, and then ultimately putting that into practice by your portfolios. So Habib, team head, architect of the team, architect of the philosophy as well. Could you maybe just tell us what the philosophy of the team is and how you arrived at that? Why do you think this is the right philosophy for our clients? Well, our philosophy is very simple, uh, to invest in great businesses at attractive valuations. And by great businesses, I don't mean kind of stocks that do well for you know a quarter or two. I'm talking about businesses that that generate wealth, that do something different, that create a huge amount of value for their customers and for their owners, uh, our, our shareholders, and, and as a consequence also for their employees and their suppliers and their communities. Uh, great businesses, if you, if you look at these things over time, over history, have, have been immense wealth creators for, uh, you know, not just for their, their owners, but for all these other stakeholders as well. But at, at the risk of sounding sort of controversial or obvious, wouldn't everybody want to invest in a great business at, at, at an attractive valuation? Yes, but identifying what those great businesses are uh, is one thing. But the other thing is, uh, Simon, there, there are the market is a large and complex place, and there's so many different investment strategies out there. You know, there are high-frequency traders who, by all accounts, seem to uh, make a, a very good living by owning stocks for you know, seconds or even fractions of yeah. a second. And, you know, all the way from, from that to our kind of buy-and-hold great wealth-creating businesses, and there's a whole range in between. So clearly different investors have different philosophies and, uh, and, and seek to add value in different ways. And, and what, what really led you to this? What was the sort of kernel, the thinking behind, behind this? Oh, I guess this goes back to uh, probably my days as an, as an accountant. So I'm a chartered accountant and uh, in the early days uh, when I left university, when I was training as an, as an accountant, I would go off on, on audit and every two, three weeks, I would uh, be at a, in a different business, uh, in, in a different industry often. And you kind of start getting a feel for it. Within the first few hours, you'd get a sense of, you know, within the first few minutes, you walk in and you, you'd say, you know, wow, this is a really nice office. Oh, my God, this office is a bit of a dump. <laughs> right? And, 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 you know, you had the whole range in between. And you had, you know, the, the great chef-prepared lunches and, and, and the factory canteen. But... Within a few hours, you figured out whether this was a really great business, whether the people worked as a team, whether they cared, whether they took ownership of what was going on, they knew what was going on, whether they cared about their customers and, and about their, their roles within the organization. And others were run like bureaucracies. And, you know, if so-and-so was, you know, the accounts payable, 
uh, person was away. No one else knew and no one else wanted. And he said, well, you, you had to wait till he gets back. And, and that sort of uh, attitude, you realize very quickly that some businesses were just better run than others. So so I was, uh, like Abib, I was also an accountant. And the thing I observed when I was going out on audit week after week is that one of the measures you can use as an auditor to determine whether or not the, uh, the business is considers and looks after its employees is the quality of the coffee. Because <laughs> if you turn up at the coffee machine and it's terrible, terrible coffee, you know that actually the labour force there is regarded very much as a factor of production uh, rather than as, a, as an asset. Um, there was one um, frozen food manufacturer I was, uh, had to go and see, and this was up in, uh, in Glasgow. And I got a bit lost one lunchtime and ended up in the, uh, the dining hall and had a very indifferent uh, meal. And there I am sitting in my sort of shirt and tie, you know, sort of suit and everything. And this is a, a sort of a frozen food factory. Uh, the next day I got tapped on the shoulder and I, I, by one of the directors and I'm told that I'd, been, I'd made a mistake. I'd, I found myself in the wrong place. I'd just gone to the, the dining hall like everybody else. The director there told me that there was a um, told me that there was a director's dining room which I was invited to go to, and so I went along to the director's dining room, and there I was served at the table by um, one of the members of the staff a, uh, a chef prepared meal, you know, separate, dining completely separately from the rest of the workforce, and even that was um, uh, was criticised by the guy at the end of the table who happened to be in quality control. <laughs> Uh, so very different attitudes, very different attitudes. Well, it seemed like you both enjoyed being out on the audit trail. I can see where you entered the, the world of fund management. But, but, but you know, Simon, the, the, thing, the thing that I sort of took away from there is that there may be a number of businesses in the same industry. They may, their offices may look the same. Their uh, factories might look the same. And they might employ similar people. But the difference that the culture makes, the attitudes of the employees... Uh, the willingness to go that extra mile, the willingness to cover for each other. That, I noticed, was the difference between really good businesses and poorly performing businesses, even but, but, though the, but the, as, the profits an, might be similar. As an accountant, though, you're not there to audit those sorts of things, are you? Sure. Oh, ab absolutely not. But yeah. you can't help but notice these things. So when I became a uh, an, an analyst, you know, a junior analyst in uh, in in the investment uh, industry, again, our job was to build earnings models, and your inputs, to the earnings models, are you know just all financial inputs, and we're talking about numbers, and uh, and I couldn't help thinking what really drives the value creation of, of a business is is those the quality of their people, the motivation of their people, the choice of their business model, and how effectively they look after their customers, their employees, their suppliers, their communities, their regulators. This is what determines long-term financial performance, even though it might cost money in the short mm -hmm. term to, to, to support all of those different stakeholders. So I started sort of building that into my earnings models and, and things like that. And, and that's kind of where the philosophy... Uh, uh, it came came from uh, the issue is when you build those things into your earnings models, those sort of factors. It takes a long time to play out in the financial numbers, so you have to be patient. And you know, you can see how the the philosophy has evolved over time. <laughs> so, so, so great businesses at, at attractive valuations. How do you make sure? And in in, you know, in, a, in, a, in a previous session, we spoke about the team and the qualities that the team brings. How do you make sure that the team 
one understands what the philosophy is and then sticks to that and embodies it in everything they do? Well, the philosophy was uh, not just developed by me in isolation. Mm -hmm. uh, the entire team uh, worked together to articulate the philosophy. Everyone challenged it and we refined it. So uh, this, this, the philosophy is completely, you know, everyone on the team buys into this. It's mm -hmm. our philosophy, it's not my philosophy. Everyone owns the philosophy. And that philosophy then translates into a process how we go about looking for, for, these, uh, uh, for these great businesses. Now, the process is a common process, but the way it's applied to each industry and each company is, is obviously unique. And that is the toolkit that we give to our investors at, on, on the team to go and apply it in, in each individual situation. Maybe Jeremy can, can talk a bit more about this. Yeah, so Abib, I think you're absolutely right. There is a collective ownership of the investment philosophy. And we've all had the opportunity over the years, nearly 12 years um, that we've been working together to contribute to how the philosophy has uh, expressed itself. Uh, let's not forget that you know, things like great businesses and, and an industry in general, it's, it's a dynamic assessment, right? Nothing stays the same. So there's always going to be change. And what makes a great business is going to evolve as industries evolve. Um, so you just have to uh, look what's going on in the world around us with things like uh, music streaming, for example, or electronic payments and uh, renewable energy, electric cars, uh, gene therapy. These are all things that have been sort of, you know, probably were not part of the public uh, debate of, you know, when we started 12 years ago, there are industries which have, have, have come up and actually what makes a winning, a winning business model within these new industries is going to, is going to change uh, as these industries evolve. So you know, what we are trying to do is, is um, identify what these great businesses are. We're, we're humble in the face of new information. We're humble in the face of data. Um, but we're trying to identify those businesses which have got something special about them, something that is unique, that is different, that enables them, enables them to prevail against their competitors. And as Aviva was just saying, it could be down to, could be down to employees. You know, it could be, you know, we've got better coffee and we're able to retain and keep better people for longer. It could be comes down to R&D and innovation. Um, but what it will be, will be something that enables that business to, that business to win. And, and, and ultimately, clearly you'll be judged on your investment results, but how do you, how do you test the, the efficacy of, of the philosophy and how do you make sure that it is still relevant? Well, data, I guess. Data, I mean, so... I mean, uh, you, you could have just got lucky for the last 12 years. So I think we, I think yeah. we have to, to separate. Um, so this is why we talk about great companies, attractive valuations. I think we need to separate um, great company and the, yeah. the valuation, the view of the, the, the stock, if you like. Um, because what makes a great company is a is a fundamental assessment, and we know in the long run, it is the performance of companies which drives the majority, by far and away, the majority of the wealth creation that you see as a, an owner. It's not the market necessarily; um, it is the cash flows that a company is generating, and that is, you know, that determines, it defines the amount of, of shareholder value that gets created over the very long term. What the market is prepared to pay for that at any particular point in time can change. And so when we think about uh, ourselves, about the efficacy of the investment philosophy, um, we need to separate it into two parts. 
have we been, you know, is our understanding of what makes a, a winning business by industry correct? Have we made mistakes? Is our understanding of what the industry is like today out of date? Has it evolved? Has it changed? Do we need to go back and, and address that? And that's a, almost, if you like, a, 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 a quantitative assessment. It's a question of reality. What the market is prepared to pay for that uh, investment opportunity is often subject to fashion. You have greed, you have fear in markets, and the, the price of money can change. So there is a, uh, an ebb and flow of what the market is, is view, opinion of a particular company is going to be at any particular point in time. And that can create opportunities. So as investors, if we find a, a wonderful company, a terrific business that is undervalued because there is too much fear, then that, you know, that's, we'd like nothing more because we know that's going to change. Um, our, our challenge uh, is, is being disciplined in that if you, even a wonderful business can be overvalued. And experience has taught us that if you find something like that, then actually it's very dangerous because all you're doing is you're putting your investors' capital at risk. And do you think it's, it's enough to have a clear philosophy now? Or do you, do you, do you think perhaps you, you might need a sort of broader sense of purpose as a, as a team of investors? I, I think a sense of purpose is, is very important. You know, you have to know why you're doing what you're doing and, and, and that sort of drives, uh, that drives everything. I think that sense of purpose even transcends your, your philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, what is your motivation? Why are you doing this? Why do you go that extra mile? Uh, I think that is, that's critical to, uh, for, to motivate people because, I mean, what, what we do is, is uh, investing is not a nine-to-five job. It's something that you're, you're sort of thinking about all the time. Every time you go to the supermarket, every time you walk through, uh, you know, a, a shop, you, you go walk through an airport, you know, you, you're sort of constantly sort of observing and, and, and clicking thing, these things and evaluating things. And, and this does require a, that, that sort of, it's a slightly obsessive profession. Why are we obsessive? Because there is a sense of purpose. We believe in what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think that's, to, to carry on on that point, I think that's, uh, there's a consistency, isn't there, between that understanding about what it is that we're trying to do, essentially trying to uh, make a, a positive difference for our clients, typically by reducing the opportunity cost of saving to meet some sort of future financial liability. And by doing that, we're trying to give um, our clients a, a an improvement somehow. You know, it could be quality of life. It could be sort of a real financial gain, and that is something that transpires over time, typically over a long time. And when I said before that uh, it is the company results that drive share price performance over time, you know, we have a we have a marriage there between the purpose of what we're trying to do on behalf of our clients and how we're trying to achieve that in terms of the types of businesses that we're investing in. It would not make sense for us to be high-frequency traders with that type of long-term purpose. Um, similarly, you know, and Habib, to your point about, you know, uh, uh, about uh, customers and staff and, and, um, and workforces, you know, if you were you know, trying to, you know, come back to your point of when you're making about when you're an accountant, if you were, you know, identified a company that was not paying attention to the satisfaction of its, mm. uh, of its workforce. Uh, employee engagement was very, very low. You, know, you wouldn't think that was a very sustainable business in the yeah. long run. Yeah, you'd lose your best employees and, mm. and then you know, your business would be much worse. 
But you know, Simon, coming back to your sense of purpose, mm-hmm. I, I think this is, uh, this is key. We have, must always remember what we're doing is our investors have entrusted us with their capital. Mm-hmm. And our task is to grow that capital as with a, within a controlled risk framework, you know, this, this is risk-adjusted returns that we're trying to generate, so that when it comes, uh, when our investors need to deploy that capital in into consumption, that there is more for them, so they can consume more. Whether that is to pay for someone's retirement, or that's to to pay for uh, some research to to cure cancer, or, or, or whatever that purpose might be, that. Remembering that is is a big motivator, and it does keep what we do very real. Uh, otherwise, you know, I, I know so many people just sort of sit at their office and look at their screen, and it's it's like a computer game. So, you, so you 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 feel a a very acute sense of responsibility in that respect. Uh, absolutely, and I I think we we have to. That informs the way we invest. So, looking at philosophy, perhaps more in a more sort of purer sense. Philosophy is, is frequently talked about as one, one, you can't prove or disprove it. Two, it defines your, your sort of preferred risk sources. And three, frequently philosophy is described as, as the market inefficiency that you are looking to exploit. And it, it can mean different things to different people. How, how do you like to see philosophy? What does, what does it mean for you? You know, I think all of, all of those things. So philosophy, defines uh, what we're trying to do. And let, let's face it, in, in markets, in business, there's no return without taking risk. So it does determine which risks we take. And I said, we want to take the risk of investing in great businesses and attractive valuations. Because if we do that, you know, we will be mista- make mistakes. Not all great businesses will generate a lot of wealth and, and so on. But more than half, more than average, will produce a lot of wealth. That is a successful strategy. So that is the risk that we want to take. Now, there are huge implementation issues around that. We don't want to take the risk of betting on oil prices. I have no idea whether oil prices are going up from here or down. I don't want to take the risk of betting on the Japanese yen Again, I have no idea what, which direction that's moving in. Uh, you know, oh, certainly I, I may be able to have a reasonably educated view, but I don't think I have particular insights more than many other market participants. Mm-hmm. There are other people who know more about this than me. So I don't want to take that risk because they will have me on, on that. <laughs> uh, I, I only want to take the risk that I think we are, we have spent all of our time and effort and energy on which is to identify those great businesses at attractive valuations. So that is a great, great in theory, but how do we achieve that in practice? Because every business that you invest in, you know, when you put, take your best ideas and collect them into a portfolio, you end up with lumps and bumps. And you have concentrations by country, by size. You may have concentrations that a lot of uh, our businesses benefit from a rising US dollar or a steepening yield curve. These are things that we don't know about. This is why we do need a different set of expertise on the team. This risk management expertise to help us identify these unintended risks. Because when you go from taking a group of stocks and turn them into a portfolio, 
there are lots of other things that need to be considered. So, so we, we won't be seeing a macro hedge fund from you anytime <laughs> soon. <I> mean. <laughs> Absolutely not. Stick to what we know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, and, and it's one thing uh, intending to stick to what you know, but it's another thing actually looking at all of those things that, that you're not focused on. And how, how, do you, how do you police that, for want of a better phrase? I mean, how do you make sure that day in, day out, everybody's sticking to so, so this is a matter of having a, a balanced team. Uh, it is a matter of, we have three people on our team who are sort of risk and portfolio construction uh, experts uh, that have, I mean, these are, I would say, sort of rocket scientists in their own right. Uh, and they've developed a, a framework uh, over the years, you know, a proprietary framework to analyze our portfolios uh, on a sort of daily, I would say, sort of almost real-time basis to, to see what risks make up the portfolio. And as I said, we, we know the risks that we want to take, investing in those great businesses that attract valuations. That's a risk we actually want to take more of. But they are policing and measuring and monitoring all those other risks that can build up in a portfolio, bringing that to our, our attention and providing us with solutions to manage and mitigate those risks. So that we, I guess, that we end up staying closer to that philosophy, right? Absolutely. So, so that when you look at the risk of the portfolio, the vast majority of the risk of the portfolio is focused on what we intend to do, that, that's invest in those great businesses, attractive valuations, and that all those other kind of peripheral risks that do creep in are relatively small and well controlled. But it's certainly a a very tricky subject and uh, sometimes quite hard to articulate. So I certainly appreciate your your comments and your thoughts on 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 the philosophy of your team. So thank you very much. Thanks, Alan. Thanks.